Turn with me in your Bibles to, whoa, there we go, turn me down a little bit, uh, Genesis 14. I don't often speak the Hebrew names as if there's some kind of special power if you just know the Hebrew name. But I do believe today that this name, El Elyon, I'm going to repeat many times. And the point is to help you as a reminder to think about God in a particular way. El Elyon is Hebrew for God Most High. In other words, your God is the strongest of the strong. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And so my question to you, and actually is a challenge to us today, do you believe in El Elyon? Do you believe that God, your God, rules over the strongest forces that surround you every day? Do you believe that? Or do you live in perpetual fear that these forces, these powerful and often wicked forces in the world, can rob you of the blessing of God? I mean, I say that because I know how much all of us at one point or another worry, right? We all are full of anxiety, so I ask that. Uh, to us, myself included. Just as an aside, gave blood this week, and my blood pressure is a little bit high, and so the the lady says, well, you're a pastor, you should be at peace. (laughs) I said, well, (laughs) I guess not. (laughs) Guess I wasn't a good testimony at that time. So, anyway, uh, it is not coincidental That when the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she will bear the Messiah, he uses these words. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High, El Elyon. When you actually believe in Jesus Christ, you are believing that he is El Elyon, the strongest of the strong. That's who you're believing in. Every day in our world, it appears that the forces of evil gain strength around us. Governments care more about their own wealth and power than the people that they govern. Companies care more about profit than they do truth and honesty and quality. Educators are intent on destroying the foundations of society. Families are breaking apart. Everywhere you look, the forces of evil appear to be too strong to overcome. It is in this world, the world in which you live, that Abram lived. So if you would, follow along with me in Genesis 14. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. 
I promise you that even though I'm going to read through a lot of really strange names, I will not keep reading these names during the preaching of this, but I'm going to read through it all right now. You ready? <laughs> In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaba Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Habath, Habah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back the, his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of, Most High, of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but that what the young men have eaten 
and share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. May God bless the reading of his word. My prayer is that God would use this sermon to bless you even half of what I have been blessed in studying it. Abram's life is the working out of God's promises to him. We have already seen that God sovereignly, God unconditionally has called Abram from the land of Ur, and when he did that, it changed everything. God's call and his promise forever alters Abram's destiny, and even those who are connected to Abram. The promise in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, and I'll just read it again, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. While the final fulfillment of these promises really awaits the return of Christ from heaven, there is an initial fulfillment of them in Genesis 14. And here's the question to be asked. Can the most powerful forces in the world at that time rob God's people of their promised blessings? That's the question. And that actually is the same question that you and I should be asking today. Can the rulers, can the powers of this world actually steal from you the promises that are yours in Christ Jesus? That's the issue. That's the question. At the beginning of chapter 14, very few people know the name of Abram. He is largely a nobody in the world around him. He certainly has increased some in wealth, but you would hardly consider him to be a strong and powerful ruler on the world stage. Up until this time, nobody would have looked to Abram, other than maybe Lot, for blessing. But this story begins to change everything. Now, the first half of chapter 14 really functions as like a news flash. Okay? Four kings form an alliance to crush a small band of five revolutionaries. That would be the headline. Russia invades Ukraine. Right? The headline. The four kings are the larger force. They arise out of the same region from which Abram came. This is basically Israel, but if you had the larger map, they came from Ur over here. Way over there. That's where those four come. Huge army. Okay? The coalition of five kings, they are local kings. They come from this region right here at the bottom of the Salt Sea. Okay? They're just kind of local revolutionaries. The battle will be fought towards the southern end of the Salt Sea. What we have here is a struggle between unbelieving nations. And as important as that struggle might be to the newspapers of the time, it is relatively insignificant from the perspective of God's promise to Abram. That's what you need to see from the beginning. I know it is hard to believe this, 
But God cares more about the fulfilling of his promises to his people than the world events that we hear in the media every day. There are a few details in this chapter that help us understand just how powerful this army of four led by Keterlaomer is. You see, 14 years earlier, somehow, we don't know the story, they had exerted control over this region. And the, the armies of this region, the kings of this region, were paying tribute to Keterlaomer. And in the 13th year, the smaller kingdoms rebel. We don't know much about that. They'd probably just quit paying tribute. Maybe they hoped that Keterlaomer wouldn't care, wouldn't want to travel all that way to try to deal with them, kind of thought, ah, oh, they'll just let it go. They figured wrong. Keterlaomer's powerful, and we know this because as he is traveling down this way, coming from here down, the eastern side of the Jordan. As he comes down, he is wiping out everyone in his path. No one can stand before him. As he gets down to the very bottom, he begins to come across to the west and then back up the other side. They make short work of the Amalekites near Kadesh. They destroy the Amorites. And then they meet this coalition of five. And it really isn't a battle. They just walk right over them. The king of Sodom is not killed or captured. He's going to be important in the story. He flees for his life. And then Keterlaomer, this great powerful king who has just been wiping out everyone in his path, he takes the booty of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, look at verse 11. It says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And I want to ask, why would Moses, he's the editor or the writer of this story, why would Moses view Keterlaomer as the enemy? I mean, Moses isn't siding with Sodom and Gomorrah, is he? If you were a historian and you were trying to figure out which of these two armies was the side, the one you wanted to be on, you would be hard-pressed to figure out which one you wanted to be on. Keterlaomer was the aggressor, but we've already known that, that they had at some point in the past agreed to pay him tribute, and they're re, you know, reneging on their promise to pay tribute, so he comes down and gets them. So, you know, you get confused in the history of it, right? Keterlaomer is not the enemy because he opposes Sodom and Gomorrah. The answer is in verse 12. Keterlaomer takes Lot. At the moment when Lot is taken, Keterlaomer becomes the enemy. And understanding that is so critical to understanding this passage. Who is Lot? He's a nobody on the histories of the world. But he is a kinsman to Abram. 
Abram is the covenant head. God has given promises to Abram and all who are in his household. And I would tell you that this is a covenant connection. It's primarily a spiritual connection. It is not a blood connection. Do you realize in this army of Keterleomer, they come from the very land that Abram is from. He is probably fighting against cousins. It's not even an emotional connection. Oh, Abram just cares about Lot. You know, we grew up together, whatever. No, remember, they, the last time we met Lot and Abram, they separate from each other because they can't get along and their servants cannot get along. Lot is connected to Abram covenantally. And even though Lot and Abram are separated, there is some connection, there is some faith in Lot that, that Abram is the recipient of the promises and he is trusting in those promises. Now Lot doesn't live in a time where there is a visible covenant sign like circumcision or baptism. So there's nothing that, that like outwardly connects them. But there is this spiritual connection between Lot and Abram who is his covenant head. So when Ketelaomer captures Lot, he touched the one person that matters to God. Ketelaomer has no idea what he's done. He has captured hundreds, if not thousands, in this campaign. He doesn't view Lot as anybody. But in capturing Lot, he threatens the fulfillment of the covenant promises to Lot. Now, as readers, you're supposed to see that Lot's capture is itself a matter of God's providence. I mean, Lot could have been one of the ones that fell into the bitumen pits. He could have been one of the ones that fled to the hillside. He could have, all those kind of things could have happened to him. But no, Lot is one that gets caught in the, uh, the captivity, taken into captivity. And I believe that God allows this to happen in his providence because God wants to declare to his people and to us today that he is El Elyon. That's why he lets this happen. You and I are supposed to feel anxious. When Lot gets captured, you're supposed to go, oh no! God has promised blessing to Lot and Lot's being captured by the enemy and taken by this powerful king. You know, Lot has traveled with Abram. He's gone down to Egypt with him. He's, he's been with him for some time. And now where is Lot going? Back to where they started. Oh my goodness. You're supposed to identify with Lot. And I don't care how many times I've studied this passage, this is the first time that it just went like, oh my goodness, I am supposed to identify with Lot. And most of the, my life, I could have cared less what happened to Lot. I mean, you would, if Abram doesn't rescue Lot, do you even care? Think about that for a moment. 
He's like, he's like a minor character in a Mission Impossible show. I mean, how many people does Ethan Hunt kill and you don't even care? It's only when a major character dies that you care, right? Lot is a nobody. Praise the Lord that he cares more to God than he cares to us, than we care about him. I mean, we might have said things like, hmm, serves him right for hanging out with Sodom. Paying the price. He made his bed, he's got to live in it. How about you? Have you made some disobedient wrong choices? Sided too much with sin? Lost years of your life because of rebellion? Maybe you feel like you've failed God. Maybe you feel like you haven't done everything right since becoming a Christian and therefore you have forfeited the promises of God. You're supposed to feel the suspense of that. Has my, has my not being perfect somehow forfeited the promises of God to me? There's suspense in the story. One solitary person gets away, comes to Lot, to Abram, tells him the news. And you're going like, what good is it going to be to tell Abram the news? This king has wiped out everybody in his path. Abram hardly had an army at his disposal. He's living by the oaks of Mamre, and his neighbors are Amorites. Now that could future make you think about they're the ones of the Canaanites that are going to get crushed by Joshua. But really at this time, they're just a few neighbors that are living with Abram. And remember, the Amorites had already been largely crushed. So supposedly these few Amorites are saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So this big army has crushed and taken many of our Amorites. And they say, well, we're going to side with you, Abram. And so Abram takes off. And Abram is awesome. He is everything that you should want to be. He responds with courage. He responds with de decisiveness. He responds trusting in the promises of God. He is a loyal kinsman. It's amazing. But you are not supposed to just see Abram's amazingness. Abram represents God's care of Lot. It is God working in Abram, moving him to chase after and go and get Lot from the hand of the enemy. Dan, not Mr. Keener, Dan is the usually the uppermost portion of the land of uh, Israel, right in this region here. Damascus is over here. So they're down here, and they travel with their army up until they find the enemy at Dan. How is Abram with a 
force of 318 men able to destroy one of the most powerful forces in the world? Because he attacked him at night? Because he divided his army? No. El Elyon fights for him. El Elyon. What happens after the battle makes this very clear. Abram's on his way home, runs into the king of Sodom. Right? Verse 17. And you think, what a little scoundrel. You know, this guy just got utterly wiped out. And in the time it takes for Abram to send his army up, defeat the foe, and come back, somehow the king of Sodom has regained his, his uh, kingdom. And he comes out approaching Abram like he's a king. Hey, let's, let's, let's barter with each other. Let's talk about uh, two kings together, maybe form an alliance, whatever. And before they can really have this meeting, it, God brings Melchizedek onto the scene. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, El Elyon. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High. I mean, who, are, we, are we getting a theme here? El Elyon, that's everything in this story. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And we have to ask the question, who is Melchizedek? And I'm not going to go into all the theories. Those of you who uh, want to study that, uh, we'll have to do that another time. God brings him at this moment in Abram's life for a very specific purpose. His name means king of righteousness. In a chapter full of kings, there, the word king is used 28 times in chapter 14. It's, it's repeated and used for the kings of four, the kings of five. That's nine of them. Guess who the tenth king in the story is? Melchizedek. Who could it have been? Abram. The story does not present Abram as the king. It brings in the, the final, the true king, as Melchizedek rather than Abram. It's not by accident that Jesus is now called Son of the Most High because he is the fulfillment of who Melchizedek is. John talked about that earlier. It's why we sang Psalm 110. God brings this Melchizedek, who I believe was just a man, foreshadowing the true King Jesus, but he brings him into the story to help Abram divert attention from him and to put it on God. Abram is not the true hero of the story. El Elyon is the true hero. As our eternal king, Jesus is our El Elyon. He is the one who conquers all his and our enemies. Melchizedek is also a priest. A priest is an intermediary between God himself and you. And in the pagan, this is the first time priest is even used in scripture. First time. But there were pagan priests and the, 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 uh, the role of a pagan priest was basically to manipulate the God to get what you wanted. 
But if you look at the way God sends Melchizedek and establishes a priesthood, he is only a mediator of blessing. He is a, the one through whom the blessing is given to Abram. Now you ask the question, why make use of a mediator in the first place? God had already promised directly to Abram promises. Why go do it through a mediator? Because God is also trying to show, not just Abram, but all of us, you do not deserve the blessing yourself. It must come to you through a priest, through a mediator, because you are not good enough. You and I need a mediator in order to experience blessing from God. Jesus Christ is our mediator. He has taken the full punishment for our sin upon himself, and now he mediates God's blessing to us. That's our mediator. So here, Melchizedek serves as a reminder to Abram and to us that the reason why you won this victory has nothing to do with your greatness. It has to do with God's fulfillment of his promise to you in Christ through the mediator. And Melchizedek, I mean, Abram acknowledges this. This is why he gives a tenth of the spoils. He says, oh yes, I acknowledge it is God most high who is graciously fulfilling his promises. It is not me. And he submits and he gives God a tenth through Melchizedek. Then, as the story goes, the king of Sodom comes back in. He says, oh, let's, let's barter here and I'll take some, you take some. And, and Abram says, no, sir, I want nothing to do. Because the blessing that I receive is solely given to me by the precious, gracious promises of God. It does not come to me by bartering with the kings of the world. All right, this is the story. So let me give you some of the applications. Jesus is your El Elyon. As Abram pursues and rescues Lot, he is revealing the heart of Jesus Christ. You are to identify with Lot. You are covenantally connected with God through Jesus Christ. There are not many other good things you can say about Lot. He's not made the right choices. He's not been a good model for us. Lot represents you at your worst. And God goes and seeks him out and brings him back. We're going to close today's uh, sermon or service with Psalm 23. And the last verse of Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow after me all the days of my life. This is, I do not like the translation follow after. Because it reminds you of like a dog following around behind you. Psalm 23 is the picture of a conquering king chasing after you to conquer your enemies and to bring you back to himself. To pursue after you, to overtake you. Abram is, is a foreshadow to us of the way in which God chases after even the least of his people and brings them back to himself.
I hope you will never read Psalm 23 again and see that last, that last verse and just think, oh, God's mercy is somewhere around, kind of chasing around me. No, he is pursuing after you to take you. There are enemies that you and I face. Some of those enemies are outward. Some of those enemies are inward. They are your old nature. You also face a spiritual foe in Satan. I don't care how big the foe is, how big he looks to you, whatever struggle you're having in your life, internally or externally, Jesus is El Elyon, and he has come to conquer them. Do not expect him to fulfill all of his promises to you immediately. You may spend a good portion of your life thinking that you are in the train of Keterleomer thinking, God has done me no good. I am on my way back to the place I started. I'm encouraging you today, even if you're in that position, cling to Jesus Christ because he is El Elyon and he will conquer all his and your enemies. Secondly, so first off, just remember Jesus as your El Elyon. Secondly, Strive to live by faith in El Elyon. You see, as much as we need Lot to help us understand that even at our worst, Jesus is the one who's conquering and pursuing and rescuing us, we need to know that we don't want to be Lot. And we shouldn't want to be Lot. We want to be Abram. We want to be someone who is trusting in God and has courage and faith and that's who you're supposed to be so use this as like yes I want to strive to be like Abram and live by faith so here's the things I have four different results that I think happens because of Abram's faith and these are the positive things that you should want to see happen in your life number one Abram's faith results in love to his kinsmen This is kind of a shocking one, isn't it? If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, that ought to cause you to love the people around you. To care about the church. Care about the people that God has brought to himself. We actually even have covenant signs that help us know who they are. The people who are baptized. Right? Care about those who belong to Jesus. Are you growing to love your kinsmen? Even those who look like Lot? Secondly, Abram's faith results in great courage in the face of a stronger foe. I get it. I watch the news. I listen to the radio. I think there's no way you're going to pull good out of this situation. (laughs) There are some negative things that are happening, powerful forces that hate Jesus Christ in our world today. Trust in El Elyon. They are nothing to him. He can overcome them with the flick of his finger. Acknowledge that. Be willing to stand in the face of all this great evil and say, that is fine, I know it's strong, I have El Elyon on my side. And if you have experienced victory, maybe you have been blessed, maybe you have overcome sin, maybe you have seen God work in amazing ways in your life and you're just like, man, I feel good. 
follow Abram in his humbleness. That he acknowledges that any victory that he has, any blessing that he has, is not due to his own greatness, but his connection to El Elyon. You would be nothing apart from Christ. Lastly, Abram's faith results in a beautiful fellowship with God Most High. Do you know what happens when the first thing before Melchizedek blesses him uh, verbally, the first thing he does is he brings Abram in and he sits him down and he eats with him bread and wine. Fellowship. You see, God doesn't just want to externally bless you. He wants to bring you into a closeness with himself. And Abram experiences that. That's what we want for our lives. We want to live by faith. We want to have courage. We want to have love. We want to have humility. And we want to have fellowship with God. You are a mixture of Abram and Lot. You need them both. Because they both help you to know how great your God is. Trust in your El Elyon, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.